This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to keep up to date. Today we're travelling back into the past by hundreds and even thousands of years to explore what our ancestors ate during the cold months of winter. Of course, food was key to their survival, though today our access to fresh ingredients, refrigeration and even recipe books is taken for granted. So how did people from prehistoric Britons to well-heeled Georgians eat their way through winter? Well, with us to dish out the facts to you are our two guests for today. Hi, I'm Emma Kay and I'm a historian and an author and I really sort of specialise in food history. Hi, I'm Dr Michael Klemperer. I am an archaeologist. I am the Senior Gardens Advisor for English Heritage and my specialisms, such as they are, are in archaeological days in the uh, Mesolithic, Neolithic, a little bit about Roman food, and I know a little bit about medieval monks. Yes, yeah, so we've got a good spread, I think, of knowledge for this episode. Let's go way back in time then and talk about prehistory and what people ate during this period. Can one of you start us off by reminding everyone what period of time we're talking about here when we refer to prehistory, in terms of the human experience, shall we say? The human experience, prehistory, is a, is a very long span from out-of-Africa theories and uh, from millions of years ago. The British prehistory is was very severely affected by the Ice Age, so we're really talking about stuff post-Ice Age and the Holocene, which is sort of 10,000 years ago. The Neolithic is probably about 6,000 years ago, which is an awfully long time. Mesolithic before that, so 10,000 years ago in Britain, to about 6,000 years ago. And it's really the differences between the Mesolithic and Neolithic in Britain is that Neolithic people started, technically started farming, whereas the Mesolithic was really hunting and gathering. And the Bronze Age is part of that story as well? Bronze Age is post-Neolithic, so Lithic is stone tools, basically. So Mesolithic is the old mid-Stone Age, Neolithic is the new Stone Age, and the Bronze Age is post-Neolithic and before the Romans. The Romans technically start about 43 AD, so that's what we're talking about. And there's amazingly past the Bronze Age is the Iron Age. So we have the Mesolithic, the Neolithic, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and then the Romans spoil it all. <laughs> okay. or, or, or make it better depending on whether you on your food choices <laughs> yes uh, well we'll get on to those what foods did people have access to during the mesolithic so if they're hunter-gatherers i guess it's mostly meat-based yeah there was obviously nothing like uh, chickens or turkeys or anything like that but they had a wild boar so not like the sort of curly-haired pink pigs we know today they were the sort of bristly tusked wild boar then you've got things like the cattle, which weren't the cattle that we know either today. So they were called alroshes and they were sort of more like bulls with great long horns, but they're now extinct. And they would have had access to freshwater fish like eels, tench, carp and seabirds, obviously insects that would have been not the variety of apples that we have now, very simple small sharp crab apples 
and things like sorrel and chives and poppy, tansy, possibly mushrooms, although I do know that slightly later communities, they really doubted mushrooms. So I'm not sure whether that was a thing or not. Certainly no onions or potatoes. And, you know, a lot of people say that the Normans introduced rabbits, but we know that rabbits have been found further back than then. I know in particular places like Swanscombe in the northwest Kent area, there's been evidence that there were rabbits there during the Neolithic age. So so that's kind of Mesolithic. And then obviously as you go into Neolithic, it becomes a bit more sophisticated. And in the Mesolithic age, they were hunter-gatherers. So they would move around the landscape like nomads, trying to source food from different locations, depending on the season, you know, and trapping animals. Or perhaps had camps in certain key areas. They had marine mollusks, they had red deer, roe deer, hazelnuts, wild berries, tubers of the lesser celandine, dogwood nuts, water lilies, seeds and roots, grasses, sedges, a lot of archaeologists joke about the Mesolithic people having relationships with hazelnuts, um, which mm-hmm. <laughs> is kind of because a lot of the stuff you find in midden heaps, which are basically rubbish heaps, are lots of evidence of marine mollusks and uh, lots of hazelnuts because that's what survives in the archaeological record. So they moved around much like traditional people, you know, hunter gatherers do today. And use the land really, and they, they, there was there weren't as so many people, so they had a, a much more intimate relationship with the landscape and and natural resources. Really, if we move a bit further forward through time, then and into the Bronze Age and Iron Age, does the diets of the ancient Britons change much? They had obviously kind of worked out the whole kind of settlement and farming notion, which they probably would have got from when migrant farmers came across from the Near East, places like Turkey and Syria. And that's when they sort of introduced farming in the Neolithic and after that period. And they would have had, well, we think that they sort of probably made cheeses and butters and they would have roasted pigs for pork. They had sheep by then goats and they may have eaten small rodents even foxes badgers ferrets that sort of thing honey's a bit contentious not sure about honey it's thought that climate limited the sort of spread of bees to northern europe during that sort of time so although there is evidence in pots that bees wax which was probably used to sort of seal pots rather than actually contain honey so i wouldn't like to say that they were eating kind of honey then they would have eaten lots of seabirds. Although I do know that there were some superstitions around seabirds a bit later in the sort of Anglo-Saxon era. So I'm not sure where that came from. Um, There's a bit of contention about the Bronze Age. And I mean, if we talk about the Neolithic, we're talking about there's evidence that they were domesticating cattle that they brought across from the, the continent rather than the aurochs, which were completely uncontrollable and wild and just gored people. And by that stage, we're probably extinct. Places like Durrington Walls, my former colleagues have done a lot of excavation now. This is near Stonehenge in Wiltshire. Stonehenge, yeah. They're, they're big feast sites with lots of pigs. They had a rather large feast with quite a lot of pig meat. And they also have forage for vegetables uh, such as nettles, sorrel, burdock, wood garlic, wild celery, yarrow, mint. So they had cattle, so... They couldn't process, probably the population couldn't process raw milk. They're probably slightly lactose intolerant. 
So they may have had things that, that weren't so specific, like butter, whey, cheese, yogurt, which is able to be stored. And they started cultivating grains. So in the later Neolithic period, people had the ability to cultivate a range of cereals and would have made porridge, beer, simple breads, that kind of stuff. Healthy whole foods, in fact. Interesting. I'd like to pick up on something that Emma said earlier on, which was, you know, no chicken, no turkey, no onions and no potatoes. Can you just explain to listeners why those animals and those vegetables won't have been available during the Mesolithic, Neolithic periods? They hadn't entered Europe by that point. But certainly, I think chickens may have come from Asia during the Iron Age. Certainly, turkeys didn't come from the Americas until the 16th century and potatoes, again, around the same time. Even when we did have potatoes, we didn't really trust them until about the 1800s. So I think 17, 1800s, you know, so I think it's quite interesting. I think people think we've always had potatoes in our life, but... (laughs) Or tomatoes. Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, Really, the the late 1680s, 1660s. Yeah. Yeah, as as Emma said, first people who tried to grow potatoes ate the berries and poisoned themselves. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't didn't necessarily eat the tubers or know how to deal with them. So So potatoes and tomatoes were South American imports, is that right? Yes. Okay. That's something that... um, you know, you don't really appreciate when you're tucking into your you know, <laughs> winter meals. So you've talked a bit about when early Britons learned to work the land and raise domestic animals. That's around the Neolithic period and later on. Obviously, in the absence of written records, is there good archaeological evidence of this prehistoric diet? Michael, you've already mentioned the hazelnuts and the seafood. Well, we know that from carbon dating, obviously, the source of a lot of these things and the charred remains that have been found in clay pots and things, peat bog bodies, things like the Lindo Man and Cheshire and, uh, you know, what their last kind of meal was. We know from also in terms of looking at animal husbandry that I think manure from animals was definitely, they found manure from animals that was kept in stalls. And that's been discovered in places like Lismore Fields in Derbyshire. There are things like cave art, you know, Craswell crags in Derbyshire. There are engravings that are showing, you know, animals, birds, horses and bison. You know, we don't know why particularly. Things like pottery as well. You get the first produced pottery, which was around 2800 BC. And that was in the Orkneys. There's pottery in the Iron Ages. Yeah, as you're saying. So yeah, so we and we so we have a, we have a lot of archaeological. Well, I say a lot. We have enough to know some basic information that we can glean from that. We also know that there were storage pits for grain that have been unearthed all over Britain, and they were kind of like deep pits cut into bedrock, and then they might have been filled, and so they would have protected seeds for growing crops and things like that. Stop them from from sprouting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm curious to know about this Lindo man in Cheshire. What's the evidence of that? What is the Lindo man? Well, he's uh, possibly Iron Age. He was found almost kind of fully intact, I think. He's one of a number of bronze, probably Iron Age, Bronze Age transition bodies. Quite peculiar. Often alleged sacrifices, possibly thrown into water to sacrifice this is lots of speculation here. So perhaps to deities, Lindo Man and other such sacrifices certainly had perhaps rope 
tortoises around their necks and possibly in their stomachs had a porridge or meal, last meal, if you like, possibly even containing things like mistletoe, which may have subdued people or poisoned them. <laughs> kind of quite peculiar practices going on in the Bronze Age, throwing tools, bronze objects, often damaged into lakes and rivers, heavily described in archaeology as ritual. Also in that period, there's a paucity of evidence to suggest that people were eating fish. So there may, and it's very speculative, and again, these things are theoretical. Your lack of evidence does not necessarily mean that people weren't eating fish, but there is a lack of evidence for people eating fish and throwing a lot of ritual goods into water so there could have been some cult or some there may have been some feeling that that water was sacred and that stuff from water shouldn't be taken but it's 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 merely speculative really but it's it's very interesting areas how was lindo man preserved in uh, peat or something yeah in peat in the bottom of bottom of late bog bodies um in bogs so they were, these poor people were thrown in into a watery environment. And of course, the water's acid and it, it, it lacking in oxygen. And their bodies are preserved and gradually tanned by the peat. So, you know, when they're dug out, often in peat excavation, when peat was cut, you know, for we don't do that anymore because we don't like to destroy natural environments, I hastily add. And English Heritage has a peat-free policy on our potting composts. As you're cutting through the peat, these bodies started turning up. And obviously, they were so well preserved initially that people thought that they were recent murders because they they were very well preserved. But um, archaeologists have since investigated them and carbon dated them and found them to be kind of Bronze Age. Gosh, that's remarkable. We'll have to do a separate podcast on, uh, (laughs) on preserved bodies in peat. Just to mention, there was a Tolland man that was found in mm, Denmark, yeah. and that again was kind of roughly Iron Age. But they were able to actually determine what his last meal may have been. That's how sort of important they are. So they think it was, you know, like a barley porridge and fish. So, yeah, they can be incredibly useful for us to learn from them the real detailed like elements of history. So, Yes, it really helps tell the story. Speaking about uh, bodies being either sacrificially chucked into rivers or wherever, how does one keep meat that one has killed, animals, etc., fresh in these periods? Uh, Presumably you'd need cold weather. Well, we know that salt was being mined um, in the Neolithic period. One example is a brine storage pit, which was unearthed in Yorkshire, and it came along with the tools and the vessels. So by the early medieval period, it was a huge commodity. And of course, salt was great for keeping anything from meats, butter and cheese fresh, for curing meat. So you'd kind of apply the salt to the surface of the meat and then leave it somewhere cold or soaking it in brine. Both processes would take, you know, a couple of days and then it could last about a month, maybe more. Meat and fish were also buried in the ground and left to ferment and they may have frozen it in ice in winter. They dry food out in the sun, in the summer, or next to the fireplace. Um, And that could be stored for several months in this way. We also know that they kept meat in streams or, you know, in water. So, but the interesting thing is it wasn't the water that preserved the meat. It's the bacteria that lives in the water. 
So that's kind of what latches on to the muscle mass and keeps it covered in bacteria and fresh. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing, actually, that, you know, you kind of think, did someone just kind of try that one day and say, oh, yeah, that works? Yeah, it is really odd, isn't it? Just like our bog bodies, people stored meat in deeper water or, or water that was anaerobic. And as a result, there's lack of oxygen and, and lack of bacteria cause lactic acid in the food and the food kind of ferments. There's still um, cultures that do that, you know, with certain cultures, bury, particularly in the, in the northern latitudes, bury meat or seabirds like puffins under the soil and they gradually ferment and that preserves them. Fascinating. You've talked a little bit about fish being in the prehistoric diets, potentially, and there might be also a, a cult of the water around this as well. We're not quite sure. But if you were a prehistoric person living near the coast, would you have had more fish in your diet? I don't think they kind of cracked deep sea fishing by that point, but it's a possibility that they could have used nets from vegetable fibres or maybe animal sinew. You know, they could have caught fish that way and it would have been dried or salted or fermented the same way as meat would have been. Would it have been smoked as well if you were, say, you were using these proto nets or perhaps you were spearing some fish in a river or near the sea? Would you be smoking these catches? I don't know. From my point of view, I'm not sure. I think possibly it'd be more dried or salted. I think smoking came a bit later on towards the early medieval, you know, into the Anglo-Saxon period. But I think it's maybe a process that we got from Scandinavians, but I'm not entirely sure about that. They may well have been doing it then. There's not a lot of evidence. I think we can only rely on evidence. Some texts do talk about smoking, but whether that's true or not, there's certainly great big midden heats by the coast with lots and lots of shells. So let's razor shells and limpets. We don't eat a lot of limpets now, unless you kind of go to Madeira or parts of Portugal, and they're, d- they're delicious, by the way. But it's not something that is in the British diet. But in the past, obviously, if one was living by the sea, kind of mussels and razor shells and clams and limpets mus- and all that stuff, whelks, all the stuff that we tend to kind of not eat as much as we used to, which is, is mm-hmm. a shame because it's... It's healthy and available. Well, perhaps um, some experimental chef like Heston Blumenthal or someone could uh, bring them back. Somebody somewhere in Britain must be eating limpets. But yeah. Battered limpets and chips, perhaps, mm. could, be, could be a new thing for, could be. for next year. What about vinegar then? So, speaking of chips, because we, you know, in the modern day that we have, we have fish and chips, vinegar and salt are key condiments for those dishes. So was vinegar used as a preservative Well, I mean, again, it's speculative. We know that they were using it in the early medieval period. So we know for sure they were using it in kind of 9th, 10th century. But vinegar is just the byproduct of any kind of carbohydrate source that's been fermented. So you leave something to rot, basically, and whatever natural kind of things, starches come out of it, gets converted into acidic gases or liquids. And so Vinegar can be made from a variety of things. So it can be made from grapes, from berries, from honey, from grains, from beets, from whey, from milk. So it's definitely something that's more associated with Anglo-Saxons and Romans. But that doesn't mean to say that they weren't doing it. I mean, Egyptians and Middle Eastern communities were using it widely, you know, and they were using it from dates and palms and things. So, And we know that there was communication with those areas. 
years and we know that we would have learned techniques and processes from the Near East and the Far East. And so it's a possibility that, yes, they were. And so that would have been a good way of preserving things too. Broadly speaking, obviously, we're still travelling through the uh, prehistoric period here, but people are probably wondering, this is an episode about traditional winter foods over time. So everything that we've discussed so far presumably would have been available in the wintertime because, you know, we're talking about animals. It's predominantly a meat-based diet. Possibly. Well... Yeah. yeah, not. I mean, not all kinds of, well, we didn't really have veg, things like sorrel and tansy and stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't an all round, an all year round kind of plant. Berries aren't all year round either. So, you know, they would have struggled during the winter, I think, to find things. They would have done this. There are sources of starch like water lead roots or bulrush roots, that kind of stuff. And obviously there are various kind of burdock roots, that that kind of stuff. So there are root crops and there would have been kind of green, depending on which period, kind of green vegetables. But obviously, as you know, we know t- from today, in fact, winters are fairly severe and most green material is, is burnt off at the slightest whiff of um, frost or snow. So you'd have to store stuff. But you'd have your preservatives and your cured meats and potentially your your grains stored underground, ready for sowing in January, February, March, sort of thing. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and you can store store nuts and and roots and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. So you can kind of understand then the theory that there was this big celebration at Stonehenge every winter for the winter solstice, and that was one way of kind of enjoying a feast, so that you had something to look forward to in the spring and summer more bounteous crops and life coming back again so to speak that's right that makes an awful lot of sense i must say and why those belief systems came about as a result of uh, how the seasons were behaving obviously getting back to some dairy products uh, some listeners might remember the history of butter episode that we did with food historian dr annie gray back in episode 133 and they might have been surprised to learn that butter was a prehistoric invention so do we have any idea how it was discovered? Well, um, cakes of butter have been found in wooden barrels and being unearthed in bogs, again, across Scotland and Ireland, not England as far as I know, but I might be wrong now. The earliest examples date to around the Bronze Age and residues have been found, I think, as I mentioned before, in pottery across a number of prehistoric sites in Britain. So it suggests that there were high levels of kind of fatty acids present to indicate, you know, dairy products that were made and kept in the Neolithic, the Bronze and the Iron Ages. And evidence of reputed Neolithic dairy strainers have been found, uh, you know, around Europe. I know one was discovered in Poland and they, they are designed to separate the curds from the whey. So possibly, you know, involved in cheese making. And as we've already mentioned, you've got to remember that people were lactose intolerant and they wouldn't have been able to digest raw milk, which is why they probably experimented with it a lot and ended up with butter, cheese and yogurts and those sort of things. Do we know, based on that archaeological evidence, whether this was from cows or was it from goats? I mean, it was probably a mixture of those things. I mean, I think, well, it depends what era we're looking at, but, you know, sheep came along a bit later, but yeah, definitely cows. Yeah, I mean, cow milk is is obviously more difficult to digest than, say, sheep or goat milk. So 
suggest, and it's suggested that cows were the, the first things that were, were um, domesticated and came over. So, as Emma said, later was sheep and goats. So, let's assume it was, depending on the period, it was cows. So, effectively, our bodies aren't actually suited to digest lactose from other animals unless it's our own mothers, basically. And we've become adapted as humans to... Yeah, we've adapted, yeah. there was. I think there was something, there's some sort of theory that it was DNA, again, from the Near East with migrants coming over, that they were able to digest it. And once it kind of worked its way through the generations that we became more and more kind of tolerant to it. But I don't know, that's just a theory. But obviously some people today aren't aren't able to digest it and are lactose intolerant. So that's that's actually not a modern phenomenon, really. It's thousands of years old. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And also um, from milk and dairy products, you get a certain amount of vitamin D as well. So obviously in northern climes, that's quite useful. Yes, absolutely, because you're not getting it from the sun and, and therefore aren't able to produce it yourself. So, certainly, certainly in northern Britain, it's a, yeah, the sun is a precious commodity. Definitely. <laughs> you don't Definitely. we know it? Yes. Um, so dairy products, therefore, were very important to the prehistoric diets, based on what you said. Yeah, I mean, full of protein and calcium and essential for healthier diets, really. And they, again, I guess they must have just thought, yeah, this is helping. This is good. I can feel the benefits of this. I'm presuming or else they would just stop doing it, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, they would. Yeah. If cheese gave them all heart attacks, they wouldn't have done it, although they'd died out, <laughs> That's they? right. So let's assume that people were able to store them and they were good for them. Were there any sweeter foods, for example, like berries that might have existed, at least in the autumn months, that would help people keep their energy levels up? Yeah, well, we did have kind of strange beets, not like the sort of beetroot we knew today, but they certainly had beets that would have maybe had some natural sugars in them. Things like wild mint, hawthorn, rowan, nuts, acorns, berries of all kinds, and herbs like sweet Sicily, which has got like a sort of licorice kind of flavor and things like that. So, you know, they could have found sweetness in many, many things, actually. But as I mentioned before, I wouldn't like to say whether they were using honey, but it's probably likely they possibly were. But Honey's often quoted, but you really need archaeological evidence. It's certainly by the time that the Romans came along, we might talk about them in a minute, honey's a thing. But whether it, it was the thing earlier is it's debatable. Well, that moves us nicely on, Michael. So thank you for segueing us into the Romans. Um, we're going to move the culinary calendar forward then to AD 43, which is the official date of the Roman arrival in Britain. Although I believe there were survey missions and other attempts to convince the tribes that uh, the Roman way was the good way. By military force, yes. By military force, yes. Just to remind people, when did the Roman period begin and end officially in the history books? Well, it began around 43 AD and then it went on to about 410 AD. So in total around 367 odd years. So it's quite a big period of time. Yeah, it's a long period of time. Mm. And 410 AD... I've got 430 and it's... but. You Have know, you? Put, oh, it, well. put in notes, but hotly disputed. <laughs> Like many things, yeah. Yes, well, this is one of the things that we've discussed in previous episodes, isn't it? Because it's actually quite hard. It's it's very nuanced, this departure, because it supposedly was quite gradual. But broadly speaking, the Roman period in Britain is just under 400 years. But what did the invasion and the occupation and Roman influence do for the British diet? 
well, radically changed it, basically. They introduced so many things, so many new plant foods, mostly sort of fruit, vegetables and herbs, which they imported and brought into Britain. And this kind of broadened both the variety and type of nutrients that were now available to communities living at that time. So onions and pears and cherries and different varieties of apples and damsons and plums and walnuts and celery and lentils and coriander and dill. And they changed farming practices and they introduced, you know, new grains. And, you know, you need a whole program on this, really. Yeah, asparagus, turnips, cherries, sweet chestnuts, medlars, figs, globe artichokes, cabbages, cucumbers, plums. What did the Romans do for us? Quite a lot, really. Guinea fowls, possibly chickens. They certainly introduced a sort of rabbit. So, a lot. What about the winter diets then in Romano-British times? Well, during winter, I mean, they'd got food preservation off to a T. You know, they reinforced all the techniques of pickling and making cheeses and fermenting. And so fresh meat would have been covered in honey and then suspended in vessels. So you didn't even need salt. Cooked meats, which had been pickled in a mix of vinegar and mustard and salt and honey. Small fish were fried and then they were immediately covered in hot vinegar and that would keep them for a fair amount of time. You had this variety of giant fennel called laser, which I've come across so many times. I'm sure Michael knows about it, which is now extinct. And that would be immersed in loads of pine kernels in a jar. And the idea was that the kernels would absorb the flavor of the fennel and so that you could use them in all kinds of dishes just to keep, you know, the flavors going. You know, they put grapes into boiled rainwater. Quinces were soaked in honey and spices. Lots of fruit was often preserved in honey. Herbs were stored in clay pots. Sorrel was preserved with myrtle berries because they understood that myrtle fought off bacteria. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. Oils, storing a big amphora, wine. Yeah, a considerably altered diet, should we say. I mean, how this altered and what trade was going on between Iron Age Britain and, and Roman Britain is contentious, but certainly we've got to remember that the Romans were here for, as I said, an awfully long time and those practices changed. They were also growing grapes as well in this country. So they were introduced wine, so potentially a huge change. Really, they've changed the British palate by bringing in lots of European, continental and perhaps even Eastern influences, depending on where this produce is coming from. Yeah, very much so. But also very important to remember that, you know, your average Briton might not have eaten peacock or, you know, had like a stuffed dormouse or, you know, these are luxury foods for the elite, you know, it's, but people would also have learned from that too, but it's not something that would automatically have been picked up by, you know, your common man or woman. So very important to keep reiterating that, I think. I think we also have to be careful about the term Britain as well, because as the Scots will no doubt remind us, and as English heritage will no doubt say, um, there was quite a big wall restricting access to certain areas of Britain. In fact, two walls, the Hadrian's Wall, which we know and love, and the Antonine Wall, which is a bit further up. So I, I, think, it, I think it's useful to, to, to talk, and the, the Welsh weren't, weren't particularly keen on the Romans and filled them full of arrows. So it's useful to remember that kind of England and Wales rather than necessarily Britain. 
Yes, just doing it as a generic word, really. But yes, yes you're absolutely yeah. right. Very good point. Yeah. The people living in the British Isles, effectively. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Saturnalia was this December celebration. We covered it on a recent podcast. This is almost the pagan celebration about the seasons, the sun, the soil, new life coming back around again, which feeds into how we celebrate Christmas even today. Are there any good historical records of what was consumed in the British Isles during Saturnalia? I mean, I think, you know, the one thing that obviously the Romans did is they liked to tell everyone everything, didn't they? They liked to put everything down. And there are documents written firsthand by Roman philosophers, statesmen, soldiers. There's endless farming manuals. Cato wrote a particular popular one which talks generically about festival foods. And Pliny also wrote at length about uh, Saturnalia and Roman culinary documents there's one called Dura Culinaria, which is more commonly referred to as Apicius. It's written in the 5th century and it mentions Saturnalia and it mentions a special cheesecake actually associated with it, which was like, it was called Placenta and it was made by a placentarius, especially for the festival. And it was kind of flavoured, layered sheep's milk cheesecake sweetened with honey. And a recipe for this same cheesecake appears in Cato's farming manual. So it was just basically consecutive layers of flatbreads and cheese and honey. So like a festival cheese, really, a festival cheesecake. The Vindolanda tablets, uh, you know, the oldest surviving written documents in Britain found near Hadrian's Wall, which we were just talking about, which is full of correspondence from soldiers and slaves and merchants. And there is a, a mention there, several references, I think, to Saturnalia. One tablet in particular talks about uh, reserving four to six asses, presumably to roast, and radishes specifically for the Saturnalia feast. We know that a suckling pig, it was important to, to sacrifice the suckling pig. And there are many frescoes and mosaics which also illustrate aspects of the festival itself. So it's quite a lot out there, really. Yeah, very vegetables fruits nuts all that stuff and radishes as well they seem to radishes grow well in the winter let's remember generally speaking then the romans really amp up the ability of the native people in the british isles to improve their diet if you're able to access some of this produce basically but if it's planted then of course it can grow and um, concede later generations of produce and then then it becomes established i suppose so if we move forward into the medieval period then, what centuries are we talking about when we refer to the medieval era? Because I understand that things have been recategorised in historical circles in recent years. They have indeed, yeah. Fifth century from the start mainly to early modern period in about 1485. I was going to say up to the 16th century, but yeah. Yeah, it, it, it again depends what we're talking about, but yeah. But basically, I think after the Romans have left in the AD 400s up until potentially 1485 is what you're saying. Yeah, that's called the early modern period, 1485, but it's, 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 it's a completely arbitrary date, really. Okay. If we're talking about the early medieval period, does that include the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, yeah. and and then we move into the Norman period uh, post-1066? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, yeah. I understand. Okay. Hopefully everyone else who's following this also understands where we are on the timeline. We've discussed, obviously, how the Romans brought new items to the British menu. So do you think that British food quality and choice declined when the Romans left? 
I think a lot of people say it did. I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest it didn't. And I really don't like the phrase dark ages. I think there's just not been enough written about it. But Britain was thriving during the early medieval or Anglo-Saxon era. It was trading widely. It was eating all manner of luxury foods and exchanging goods like for like. Mediterranean traders who would have been laden down with things like olive oil and commodity, other commodities from perishables from places like Turkey and North Africa would have visited numerous locations, one in particular like Tintagel on the Cornish coast. And they went there on a, a number of occasions, particularly we know around the 6th century. It was a location that was probably both occupied in a way and used as a trading station, possibly used as a kind of royal bolt hole. And finds from that era include things like oyster shelves, livestock bones, cod bones. I know for a fact, having studied a lot of the variety of fish in some detail from the Anglo-Saxon area, that cod was more of a, a rarity and more of a luxury kind of fish. It was more commonly consumed towards the Norman era. Um, herring and eel were the fish of the average person. Cod and haddock were for the wealthy. So this particular period is sometimes nicknamed the fish event horizon as more kind of fishing took place due to the sort of start of fasting days and Christianity grew. But there's archaeological finds at Tintagel include all kinds of things like bowls, jars from Turkey and Cyprus, Spanish glassware, fancy brooches, knives. Similar items have been found in places like central London, Oxford, Lancashire. There's evidence of residual spices in pottery ware that have been unearthed, as well as substantial remains of figs and dates and things like in Colchester. Five garlic cloves were found in Yorkshire. Many medicinal recipes from that time exist as well, which I might talk about later. But but yeah, you know, you're talking, this is luxury stuff for some people. Obviously, not everyone. Yes, and Tintangel, obviously an English heritage site. It certainly um, is. Certainly worth a visit with the... Um, new bridge. The new bridge that was installed a few years ago. So yes, plenty to discover there. And as you've been saying there, Emma, these luxury fine goods weren't necessarily all just found at Tintagel, they were found across England. So this demonstrates that trade continues after the Romans leave, it doesn't just cut off at all. The spread of Christianity and the establishment of monasteries must have been also important for medieval Britain's relationship with food because of Christian feast days. Would that be mm. right? Yeah, well, some of the most important references to Bifu can be found from medieval monastic life. Monks documented everything, really. And they were, of course, you know, it's so easy to forget that people were illiterate in the main, but monks weren't, or royalty or the elite. But I think there were around something like 40 to 60 feast days in the medieval Christian calendar. And, you know, monks, they farmed, they baked, they grew vast orchards, they brewed alcohol. Remember, they also acknowledged a lot of fasting days too, which we've got to remember. It wasn't all fun and feasts. So not just Lent either. There were at least three days a week where you would be fasting. So you'd fast on a Wednesday, which was the day that Christ was betrayed by Judas, Friday was penance for his suffering, and Saturday was in honour of the Virgin Mary. So although fasting wasn't consistent from monastery to monastery, though, there was one universal rule, and that was no meat. But fish was exempt from Noah's Ark, so you could eat fish freely. 
So for people on the coast all year round, fresh fish, it wasn't a problem. But if you lived inland, you'd struggle with, you know, salted herring or cod. Yeah, so they also got around this, the monks. Sorry, I I just wanted to mention the fact that the monks kind of got around the problem of not eating meat. So they sometimes cheated and they consumed things like dolphins and porpoises, which was a big market then, particularly in kind of sites like Flixborough in Leicestershire. There was a huge kind of market for dolphins and porpoises. And these were technically mammals and not fish. And so they even ate seabirds like puffins, justifying them as beasts that ate fish and therefore they were more kind of fish-like. So they were a bit cheeky, really. They kind of got round a few things. And they also kept fish as well. So they had monks. Monks had big pools of fish. So they had certain vegetables. It's Mount Grace Priory where English Heritage has done a bit of work on this. We know that the monks were growing certain vegetables as well. So they had carrots, um, beans, and various strange things like skirret, which is quite an odd kind of root vegetable, onions and things like that. So they also had lay brothers who, depending on the the order, they had lay brothers who who farmed for them to keep the monks up and running and praying for our immortal souls. So it's quite useful to remember that. Monks, Monks had big farming operations. How well did they eat in the wintertime then, monks and nuns? I think monks originally were certainly only allocated one meal a day in winter. And this would either be like vegetable or cereal based or fish or egg based. Only monks who were ill could eat meat. And I have heard yeah. stories of some monks actually, you know, trying it on. Oh, I'm really ill. You know, I need, I need a bit of, uh, I need a bit of steak today. So I think that happened quite a lot. Each monk had around a pound of dark rye bread. Remember, that's kind of like the lowest quality kind of grain. Then really, to eat with their meal, and about half a pint of watered down wine. Fruit was also consumed on a large scale, as Michael said, and it was also always on hand from their orchards. And they were probably able to flavour vegetable stews and things with, you know, a lot of the herbs. They had big herb gardens. During Lent, they were only allowed one meal a day, I think. But this altered as the medieval period progressed. And I know that they did, towards the end, start eating meat. And, have it, and having more than one meal a day as well. Yeah, definitely. Marks are loose. Lou's Priory had a massive two meals a day. But it, we're talking about quite a long period here. So there's a huge range of possibilities in that period. There was quite a lot of, obviously, evolution in practice as well. So, What about winter meals fit for a king? How would, for example, the Tudor king of the 14 and 1500s, such as Henry VII, or his son and successor Henry VIII, have eaten during the winter months? Very well indeed the more colourful, exotic and aesthetically pleasing during a feast, the better because you were showing off as well. You were saying, oh, we've been able to get these spices from this country and we've this is the wonderful meat that we've culled on our estate and we've got sugar, you know, look at all this sugar that we've got, heavily flavoured foods with exotic imported spices, ginger, nutmeg, cardamom, lots and lots of sugar was in use by this time and being used freely by the wealthy in all sorts of dishes. You've got dried and imported luxury fruits and figs and dates. Feasting was a a regular part of elite medieval life. Roasted peacocks, which would have been redressed in their feathers after cooking, whale meat, wild boar, rich meat pies, 
elaborate jellies colored with things like saffron, sugar, marzipan sculptures depicting ships or woodlands, you know, crazy like Heston Blumenthal type stuff. You know, the more elaborate, the better, really. Things stuffed within things, yeah. How are they accessing this sugar then? It, it would have come from the West Indies. The first real records you get of sugar are about the 1200s. And then it kind of grows and grows and grows and grows. But it's but it was possibly even slightly earlier than that. Sorry, 13th century is what I mean. But possibly even earlier than that as well. I think people don't realize just how early we did have sugar in this country. But you're talking about a small percentage of the population being able to eat it. Your common man would, would not, you know, they'd be eating honey or berries, not sugar. Yeah, definitely. And also they, they, their access to certain elite foods was restricted. So peasants weren't running around eating uh, no, exactly. eating deer or anything like that because no. it's absolutely forbidden to them to, yeah. to hunt or... Mm. What do the records say about how the poor would have survived during the winter months in, say, Tudor England? Well, probably very little fresh. It would have been preserved, salted, dried, pickled from animals that would have been killed in autumn if they were lucky. Blood sausages were quite big, so black puddings and things were popular because every bit of the animal would be used. And they possibly also made confits to sort of pop meat for winter. So there's poor, you know, hot fat on top of salted meat. There were a whole kind of series of mini ice ages in medieval Britain, and it made winters particularly harsh. Peasant workers had to work hard planting out winter crops like wheat and barley for the spring. They also had to harvest other winter crops like cabbages and leeks. So it was a very very difficult time and you know what they did grow they'd have to give most of it away and you know paid in in rent to their lord and master so it was hard going yeah they had collective fields i think the short answer is not much they would have stored carrots apples plums grapes and that kind of stuff onions peas colwort and beans lentils but you know i think the clues in the title peasants really they had a pretty tough time <laughs> Pottage and gruel, that kind of stuff, which is cereal-based pottage with pretty much everything in, including fruit. Yes. How good is the documentary evidence for medieval winter food then? There is an abundance of medieval culinary texts and writings, but they're specifically written by the elite for the elite not peasants, obviously, because you've got to remember, again, as I said before, they weren't literate. So you're only getting it from people who wrote documents who had wealth. So there's things like the form of Curie, which is a, a manuscript written around the 14th century. And that was written by the chef to King Richard II. There are miscellaneous household royal documents, two anonymous cookbooks from the 1400s, which were translated in the 19th century. You've got things like Liebercur Cocorum from the 15th century, which is, they think, from Lancashire. Again, that would have been written by someone who worked in the royal household. Recipes were for the elite, you know, cooking was for the elite. In the 1500s, you get writers like Hugh Platt. Again, he was an aristocrat, but he wrote a lot about agriculture and cooking. Finding texts written by lower ranks of society is almost impossible. There are many kind of generic early English books, manuscripts, diaries, journals, letters, agricultural, archaeological data, 
that can you know help inform our research about exploring different settlements and how they functioned on a daily basis. I know there's one example. There's a deserted medieval village called Ulnaby in Durham, and excavations were undertaken in 2007, and they revealed a manor house and a fish pond and a dovecote that were used all year round for food, and the peasants farmed the surrounding land to feed themselves and provide for the master. So it's things like that that give us an indication of what there was, but it's like most history. Sadly, it was only written by people who who had the ability to do it. In order to survive winter, I suppose you need a lot of calories. So was ale, this watered-down version of ale, this alcoholic drink, quite important to ensure that you had your body fats and you could sort of stay warm during winter? I got a bit of a beef with ale, actually. I don't know. I just think... We're so obsessed with, you know, everyone always, you know, before we had kind of sanitized water systems and everything, that everyone was, you know, drinking very weak ale or wine. But I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit contentious because it is very contentious. (laughs) Right. Research suggests that water wasn't as polluted or undrinkable as we think it was. It's arisen from researchers establishing how much grain was produced and then calculating what percentage was actually turned into ale. And it's been concluded that, you know, after many calculations, that in order to provide every adult with the minimum amount of ale to keep them hydrated every day, they would have needed to use about 83% of the country's entire grain production. So perhaps we've all been a bit misled by that one. Rural populations in particular had access to fresh water wells and streams. And the most crucial point of all is for me, which I've always, which has always bothered me, is the germ theory wasn't discovered until late 19th century or whatever. Well, they were on it before then, but which means that nobody really even considered that water supplies could be polluted or could be harmful unless it was instinctive. And they just sort of thought, oh, I drank a bit of water and I wasn't feeling too well. I do think that they did use fresh water a lot. Yeah, I agree. I think much more than perhaps than we think. And also, there's no guarantee that if you've, you're fermenting things, the nasty bacteria are going to be necessarily killed. So I think we need to regard this with, with the rolling drunk medi- medieval peasant on acres and gallons of beer and cider is, is perhaps... A stereotype. Fanciful. Yeah, a stereotype yeah, or fanciful. A bit. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Regardless of what actually did happen in the past, if people were having ale, whether it was um, a celebratory ale around Christmas time in the medieval period or whatever, would it have been beneficial to keeping them sated and also warm because of the extra calories that it would have given them and therefore added to their fat stores? I don't know, maybe. Yeah, if they were drinking ale and in, in, you know a weak beer, certainly that that would have added to their calories. You know, um, yeah. alcohol does, does. As the drinkers amongst us, will no doubt know. Okay, <laughs> moving on to the 1700s and onwards, we're into the Georgian and Victorian period now. Did the quality and quantity of food available at winter time improve in these centuries? I think with the Reformation and the Renaissance and Enlightenment and all of that, I think there was more awareness for sure, which I think in turn generated some changes. 
the need to solve the problems of perishable foods, I think it was quite critical to society. And especially as we've sort of been through political unrest, severe economic issues, civil war, fire and plague, I think there were probably a lot of scientists and philosophers that were carrying out research, trying to find ways in which things could be kept um, and stored and preserved. You know, there's a scientist called Robert Boyle, he was kind of late 17th century, and he actually discovered the presence of air that was responsible for the decomposition of food, while vacuum packing, which unbeknown to him then, prevents the presence of bacteria. And I think this kind of sowed the seeds for the future kind of germ theory and pasteurization. Rural communities were declining, migrating to the big towns and cities where food could be purchased in large marketplaces and grocery stores and things um, if you could afford it. So it was the age of the burgeoning middle classes, workers on large estates where, you know, they had the ice, the lakes, they could extract the ice in winter and then store it in brick built ice houses so that kind of sorted out a lot of those kind of problems. So that's a very early form of refrigeration. There's big ice houses, big examples like at Kenwood and Audley End House. But the rest of the 18th century society had to make do with salting and smoking. Um, while fruit was traditionally boiled in syrup, dried on stoves, there's nuts like walnuts were gathered seasonally, stored or pickled. There's records of barrels and barrels of walnuts in the Georgian era. Yeah, and barrels of oysters as, as well, and green beans, spinach, sorrel. And you're beginning starting plant breeding as well. So new varieties have been experimented upon and that, that kind of stuff. Not as much as in the Victorian era, but certainly um, there was a wider range of, of stuff available. And let's not forget potatoes and tomatoes and that kind of stuff as well. So new things coming in, and of course the, the wonderful pineapple. That of course, everyone in the Georgian era ate in huge quantities. Now that's a complete lie. They a few people in stately homes started to grow pineapples, and there was a bit of a pineapple cult amongst the very wealthy. But they, and they were grown in pineapple pits, which were basically manure pits that heated the pineapples. But uh, pineapples were regarded as an elite food um, in, the, in the Georgian era. How was it possible that these uh, additional fruits and vegetables or meats were able to grace the dinner tables of either the elites or the middle classes during the Georgian and Victorian periods? Was it just as a result of greater ship technology and trade and yeah, refrigeration? We were importing a lot of goods by then. And of course, by the time you get into the Victorian age, early Victorian age, you've got canned products and dried products Meat was transported from rural farms into the new towns and cities, but a lot of the quality would have been reduced. So they were constantly looking, as we've already mentioned, they were constantly looking at ways in which we could keep things. So there's lots of people that were involved in that kind of early process of, of canning and perfecting the practice of uh, thermal processing using bottles and finally tin cans. You know, the French kind of pioneered it and then we kind of got onto it. The first sort of canning factories were established kind of as early as 1813, actually. And they started supplying British military and the Navy and those sorts of things. So it kind of had a knock-on effect. And then, of course, you got citrus fruits coming in in the 1700s as well, which, again, bolstered the Navy and, and helped kind of eradicate things like scurvy. And so this kind of knock-on effect of dried and canned foods and being able to feed the military, you know, and sea power and keep everyone going, that was a big thing. 
And it's the beginning of, you know, the capitalist age as well. And obviously, as, as we go through the Georgian period and into the Victorian period, it is, it is the rise of, of the British Empire, products from the, the British Empire flooding into this country. And um, not necessarily, a, a British Empire is, is not necessarily a good thing, but they, they were, for the, um, particularly the elites in, in Britain, there were significant opportunities, yeah. I suppose it wasn't hugely different from what the Romans did in terms of their economy and how they managed to bring more diverse foods into the British Isles. Well, absolutely, yeah. It's the same thing, really. A colonial power taking the, the fruits of other nations, both literally and metaphorically, um, back to the motherland, so to speak, and huge trade routes and huge inequalities of wealth as well. So, yeah, yeah. it was all about exploitation, basically. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily benefiting the poor either, again. Well, about the poor, how would they have eaten in the winter months in the Georgian and Victorian periods? Well, things like carrots and turnips were staples. They didn't cost much. They made good winter food, things like watercress. It's also a kind of working class favourite for winter. It was accessible, I think. Michael might debate this, but isn't it available about nine months of the year? Yeah, I mean, obviously the first frosts like get rid of watercress, depending on how, in how frosty or, or cold it is. But watercress is, was widely available. There was a lot more green beans, spinach, beets, fennel, ransom, winter savouries, radishes. Chestnuts as well. Chestnuts were big, weren't they? And eaten on street food and stuff. Yeah, so the poor have always been the poor and have sadly always missed out because of their financial situation. But for those who had the money, or there was a wider range of foods available, certainly. Yeah, I mean, they may have had like a joint of meat once a year, you know, something like that. But they wouldn't have had access to ovens. So you go to a communal cookhouse or a bakery and you get it cooked there. But they would eat plenty of offcuts like offal, heart kidneys, brain, the shins of meat. Dripping was obviously cheaper than butter. And you might even keep a couple of hens in the backyard, maybe, if you, you know, moving. This is into the Victorian period, really. And things like candied peel and dried fruits weren't now kind of, they were getting more reasonably, they were reasonably cheap and available across the classes. And of course, dried pulses, particularly peas were available, you know, all year round. So peas pudding, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there were just, it was like little step for poorer people, I think. As we begin to finish off our plate, so to speak, and uh, chew over these final morsels of uh, food history, what are the common themes around winter fare? I suppose in some respects we go back a little bit to the prehistoric times where it's very pagan, effectively. It's all related to farming, foodstuffs, produce, survivability, seasons, that sort of thing. Would you, would you say these are all common themes that really rear their heads during the winter? Mm, giving thanks, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, and making sure that you bless the next harvest. And that was so important. You know, the, the relationship between man and the land, uh, I say man, man and woman and the land, was hugely integral to their lives. And any way you could through sacrifice or through rituals or all kinds of things, you know, to give back to the land and to those gods who, who oversaw the land, you know, that was essential for making sure that good food and good harvest would persevere and you would continue having this. So it was a whole cycle and that was caught up in many, many different kind of feasts and festivals and, and activities of worship. So the question is stemming from that, 
how did Christianity keep those kinds of farming traditions alive whilst trying to spin beliefs in a different direction to believe only in one Christ the Redeemer? Well, I suppose you had all the saints days, didn't you? So you had all the feast days. So it was it was kind of a similar sort of thing. You'd be recognising a saint rather than recognising like a sun god or something. So that's how, you know, that's... It's kind of more of the same in a way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Weirdly more of the same until, until the Puritans came along and, and got rid of most of the saints and uh, feast days. So we have a, a, a much reduced pattern or, or, or range of, of saints days now. I think it's, it's it's useful, and many people now are suffering from fuel crisis and all that stuff. To to remember that people are still now now are suffering, but it's useful to remember it in the past that the winter was extraordinarily difficult for people, and that the people really, particularly the poor, really did quite did suffer in winter. And it was it was people had to be extraordinarily um, adroit in storage and making sure that in the good times in the summer and in harvest that they, they stored enough stuff and cured enough stuff and grew enough stuff to get get them through the winter. I would also say that there are all the other things that they had to worry about as well. So, you know, they had to constantly be vigilant in terms of being invaded or aggressors, fighting wars. They were always on high alert this kind of sense of family was very different then. Young children were, you know, they grew up to learn how to, boys learned how to fight. Young girls learned how to sew and, and keep everything that the men needed in order to fight and be strong. And, you know, there was this constant kind of, it must just have been a constant stress. That's how I see it. Just always being on your guard and trying to think about where your next meal was coming from. It must have just been extraordinary. But then the other thing I think of is if you didn't know anything else, then perhaps yeah. it just wasn't. You know, perhaps they just got on it, with it. And It seems <laughs> extraordinary to us, I think, yeah. as Emma says. But actually, it wasn't extraordinary to people in the period because that's how they lived. So they, they lived through much more seasonal cycles. You know, they couldn't switch on an electric light and uh, study late into the evening, you know. Candles, if they had them, or, or, or wicks were expensive. So you got up when it was light, and you went to bed when it was dark. And you, let's remember, it's it's dark at three thirty. So I think that's important as well. And I think whilst things are difficult for many people across the United Kingdom at the moment with the fuel crisis and the cost of living crisis, that is, if you're listening to this podcast in 2023, perhaps in 2123, people will look back on this podcast and say they had it tough then, we've got it easier now sort of thing. So the way that we look back into history, I think in some respects, we're getting at least a little bit better each time uh, as each century sort of rolls rolls along. But I think there will always be inequalities. I think that's probably a common theme. It's sad. Let's, let's hope there aren't. But I, I think um, the lessons of history do tend to remind us that um, inequality seems to be deeply baked, unfortunately. Yes, there's there's plenty to improve upon in societies as we go through time. Speaking of time, if you had to pick a time period to go back to for a winter meal, which period would you like to go back to and what foods would you like to try? <laughs> I mean, that's just all, all of them. But um, yeah. no, I, I, think the, <laughs> I think the one I'd really like to do, I'd love to be a Viking warrior. And I'd love to be exploring new lands, trading widely, tasting new things, learning new cultures, sampling, you know, Middle Eastern spice sauces for the first time and things like that. So 
that would probably do it for me. Just all those new experiences. Michael? For me, two things really. I, I think it would have been fascinating being a, a Roman kind of elite feast. Just to actually see, that would be probably incredible. And, you know, go back to my childhood in the, in the in 60s in Birmingham, having a f- fish finger sandwich, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be back to learn about the life and legacy of naturalist, explorer and anthropologist Alfred Russell Wallace on the 200th anniversary of his birth. He should be regarded as Darwin's equal, but it's a great shame that he's been eclipsed by Darwin because he did come up with a theory of evolution by means of natural selection, and that's how he should be remembered. Thanks for listening. See you next time.